0: speak to us you would change us you would challenge us you would conform us lord forgive us if we have become stagnant in our faith forgive us if we've become immovable in, in who we are god i thank you you are a god of transformation of of this amazing ability that you have to come within our lives and take disorder and create order to take chaos and to create peace and I pray, Lord, that to this morning as we take a look at this next passage in Colossians, that we would ask ourselves, are we change? Are we changing? Are we being changed by who you are? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. If you're visiting with us this morning, we want to say welcome, and thank you so much for coming with us. We are continuing on a series that we started off last week, and we are going to... Uh, recap a little bit about what we're talking about. This morning, the series we started off is called Buffering. Right we said that buffering is this idea that there's so much coming at us there's so much data there's so much experiences especially in the fall that it's almost overwhelming that we become frozen in in our behaviors and in who we are. Let's recap what we talked about last week so we're all on the same page. Last week we said that the fall is this time of year when we come back from the summer and we just start whether it's school or jobs or or just our lives, we almost go back to normal again, but it's almost the point where we kind of walk around with this buffering symbol above our head, because so much is happening, and it's not about making decisions based upon what we think is valuable, what we think is true, but it's what we have capacity for, what we have time for, and that actually may be the wrong way to make decisions. We said that in this series, we want to answer three questions. What are you becoming? Do you want that? And is there a better choice? See, I think that what's happened in our lives is that we have become, uh, we are becoming something, but we are not aware, we are not self aware of what that thing is that we are becoming. And the problem with that is that at the end of it, we are something that is something so um, bizarre to us. Like a decision seems small, but it, the decision is what kind of propels us forward, and it's a series of decisions which become our lives. And so this series is kind of talking a little bit about that. We looked at uh, the first part of Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 4, and the whole um, first four verses can be kind of summed up in this idea that Jesus is our real life. Like real life, like what what is real life and and, and are we becoming that? are we moving towards that um, what 's interesting is, is that oftentimes um when we, say, when we set ourselves up goals, whether it's in school or jobs or relationships, you know, we don't realize that we have to start deciding now before we can actually become something in the future. One of the things that I do when I do premarital counseling is I actually make the couples make up a budget. And the reasons I do that is because I ask the question, where do you want to be five years from now? Where do you want to be 10 years from now? Because wherever you want to be five years from now, wherever you want to be 10 years from now, you've got to decide right now. Like, you, you just can't, like, if you want to buy a house five years from now, well, this is the amount of money you got to set aside each month in order to have a deposit. If you want to be done your education, if you want to have a baby, if you want, like, whatever decisions you make in the future, you got to start changing behaviors now. And so, what Paul says to us is that Jesus is our real life. Like, like, whatever else we think about our lives, Jesus is our real life. And we wrapped up looking at John chapter 3, verse 6. And just so you know, I tend to use a, an NLT version, New Living Translation version, for the scriptures you'll see on the, on the screen there. Just to kind of make you aware of that. And John chapter 3, verse 6, I love how the NLT says it. It says this Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to the spiritual life. Well, there's lots of great things we can do in our human lives, and, and that's part of what makes us human. But God says that there's a different path, there's a different life, and that's the spiritual life, and that's the realm of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, we're going to continue on with that series. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the video you saw there. I have been just poring over, researching, what, is it, what, like what makes people change? right? Like What makes people change? Let me, let me put it to you this way. When's the last time you went to a restaurant you've never been to before and allowed somebody else to order your meal. The response to that is probably never, right? Often what happens is we, we get into routines. We, we want to go to our favorite places to eat. We want to get our things on the menu that we want. We know are going to be great. Now that's okay because obviously you're spending money on it and you don't want a terrible meal. But where's that adventurous part of us that says, you know what, I'm going to go somewhere I've never been before and I'm just going to order something off the menu to see what it's like. Well, we don't do that, because we like routine, we like safety, we like to have this thing there. What Jonathan Haidt does is he talks about this idea of change, and I've been reading over literature of change over the last 30, 40 years, and just seeing, what's the consensus? How do people change? And Jonathan Haidt actually kind of identifies three areas in our lives that have to be in alignment for change to take place. He says, first of all, the rider is our rational brain, right? This is the part of us that says, hey, this is a good idea. This is a good decision. So I'm going I'm to make that decision. But he says the secondary part of change is the emotional part, right? The elephant is the emotional brain. the idea simply is that it's really our emotions that kind of make change more than actually our heads, right? And so... He says that these two are are coming together. He says there's a third option. This is what I kind of like about his writing and, and how he's viewed things because there's a third part to change that has to happen, and that's environment. So let me put it to you this way. Um, Over the years, I've had the opportunity to work with um, uh, 12-step programs and people with addictions, and it's taught me something in regards to how do people change. So if you've ever uh, been in a 12-step program or or have been a part of somebody who's been a part of that community, what's really fascinating is you have a group of people in a room that all struggle with the same thing, right? Whether it's alcohol or, or, or narcotics or behaviors, whatever it be, they all struggle with the same thing, and they sit there and they say, this is, this is what I struggle with. Now, what's interesting is, though, is that before these people can make changes in their lives, they have to kind of go through the first two, right? They acknowledge that, you know, I've hit rock bottom, that this behavior has destroyed my life. You've never heard more moving a testimony if you've ever been to Alcoholics Anonymous when the person sits there and says, you know, I, you know when I got into alcohol, I, I lost my marriage, I lost my job, my children don't speak to me. It's just, it just this downward spiral in the behavior, and you're like, you cringe, but then they say something like this, and then I hit rock bottom. And then I decided to make some changes. And so they, their head says, okay, this is it. Like, I can't go any lower. And if I keep going this way, I'm, I'll be dead. And then their heart goes, yeah, I, I feel this. I need, to, I need to restore relationships. I need to restore that, right? But the third part is the environment. So, for example, you will hear them say things like this in the meeting, that when I became sober, I lost all these friends, because I could no longer be with these people because these people are a trigger for my addiction. They had to alter their environment in order for the change to actually be permanent. And they're actually, what happens within these programs, and people may not realize this, is they will cut people out of their lives who will enable them, who will continue the addiction rather than help them fight against it. And Jonathan Haidt says that whatever change is, however you understand change in your life, that these three areas have to be aligned. The logical brain can, can got caught spinning its wheels, constantly searching for more information and trying to figure out the absolute best way to do something right? Cognitively, we say, like, this would be a great way to do something. This is how we make a right decision. But that's not the only part. The heart has to come in saying, I feel this decision to be correct as well, too. I feel that this is what I need to do. But the third part, again, is the environment. So even if the rider and the elephant are on the same page and have the same end goal in mind, their success can easily be thwarted by incompatible environment. Now, the reason I want to start off with this idea of change is because however you, wherever you are in your life, whatever you are trying to accomplish, these three areas must be in alignment before you're actually able to change something about yourself, which shows you why change is so difficult because we oftentimes, when we think about change, we only get one or two of these correct, and then we wonder why change actually doesn't take place. And so what takes place then is when we look at this, we're going to take a look at the next passage of in Colossians there, and you're going to see how Paul actually acknowledges these three areas for change in the area we want want to look at. But before we do that, I want to ask you, I want to propose a question to you. Pretend God was invisible. Pretend God was invisible. Now, If all of you are in your right mind, you're thinking to yourself, um, God is invisible. And then, Pastor, if you've seen him, we have this great white jacket that lets you hug yourself all day long because I haven't seen God. Now, if we think that God is invisible, and the correct answer is he is, now look at the second part. The only way you would know that this unseen being is real is by the behavior of those who know, love, or follow him. Let me put it to you this way. When I was in Bible college, we had this guy on our floor and he had a girlfriend. Now, when I was in Bible college, this is the day before uh, the internet, cell phones, Facebook, all that. Yes, the ancient times, right? When, uh, when, you know, somehow we survived without social media. And he kept talking about this girl that he was dating. And we started thinking on the floor. A bunch of guys started saying, I don't think she's real. I think he's making her up because she was so great. Like, you know, like she lifted his car and fixed his wheel and, and did his taxes and did brain surgery. Like, it was just basically, he was getting to the point where she seemed almost too good to be true. However, he acted as if she were real. And I remember one time, it was kind of this girl came and kind of, kind of flirty with him, and he was like, whoa, I got a girlfriend back home. It's like, oh, okay, well, this is behavior saying that she might be real. I remember one day when we were at, um, we had this mailbox area. So uh, those of us live on campus, we had these like little mailboxes where we get our mails from people who sent it to us. And, you know, some of us never got any mail, but that's a whole different therapy session. So anyways, one day I was there and I was getting my mail and he was to my left and he had let out this like, like this, 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 uh, excited whoop, like, woo. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, what? And I look over, and he has this envelope, and it's pink. Huh? Okay, feels kind of female. I don't know. It feels, feels that way. I like who's that for me? He's like, my girlfriend. I'm like, okay, here is tangible proof she's real. But see, I'm such a cynic. I didn't believe this actually was from her. I thought maybe he just wrote, sent this to himself to kind of prove this theory. So I said, hey, can I see? He's like, no, I'm not going to let you read it. I'm like, I don't want to read it. I just, I just want to see if the handwriting of the person in there matches your handwriting is really what I wanted to say. And He's like, okay, fine. And he opened it, and it was, of course, very... You know, neat, handwritten, you know, felt felt uh, felt was, was not him, at least, if, the, if nothing else. Whether he's paying his mother to send him the letters, I don't know. But the point was, is he was acting and behaving as if this person was real. And some of us were doubting it. Some of us were like, eh, right? And, of course, she eventually did come to school. And we did meet her, and that was the whole joke. And we did tell her we didn't think you were true and all that. And she says, I get that a lot. I'm like, what are you doing with this loser? Anyways, that's a whole different conversation. But the point is simply this. Yeah, wow, that just happened. Nobody tweet that, by the way. Okay, so the point is this. If God is invisible, then the only way you know God to be true is in by the behaviors of those who love, follow, or know him. Now with that as a backdrop, let's take a look at Colossians because Paul is going to talk about this now. So remember the first part, the first, uh, first uh, one to four was all about this idea of Jesus being your life. And we go, yes, yes. But now Paul's going to shift gears a little bit, and he's going to start talking about what that life actually looks like. So if you have your Bibles or you have electronic devices, you can get out Colossians chapter 3. And again, I tend to use the NLT version, but whatever version you want, go ahead. Um, And uh, of course, as always, the scripture will be on the screen. So Paul opens up now this next section. He says this, so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Now, I love that word lurking. Remember, Paul is brilliant, right? He was trained as a lawyer, right? And so he was trained by a lawyer by one of the the most famous uh, um, uh, rabbis of his time, Gamaliel, which means that every time Paul uses a word, he uses that word intentionally. And so he uses this word lurking. And I think it's the the imagery behind it kind of acknowledges something that Paul wants to kind of flesh out a little bit. Paul operates under the assumption that what we have been slash are lurks under the surface waiting to return. So Paul says that that you need to put aside, you need to put to death, you need to set aside the things that you had been that are lurking inside of you. And just so you know, it's not just Paul who has this, but actually, this is a repetitive theme within the Bible. We see this time and time again. And of course, Romans chapter 7, one of my favorite passages of the Bible, why do I do what I don't want to do? Right? That's just... That is, like, like that's tattoo worthy. And I don't care what everyone else puts in there. That, you know, is tattoo worthy. That is, that's tweetable, right? Why do I do what I don't want to do? Paul's response and Paul's answer is, it is sin living in me. Now look at Genesis chapter four, right? Remember the story of Cain and Abel, right? God speaks to Cain after he kills his brother Abel. And he says this, sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Look what James says, temptation or sin comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. We have, mis- we have a mistaken belief in the passivity of sin. In these scriptures, and again, one of the themes of the Bible is this idea that sin is not just something that happens. Like we have this idea of sin that we're walking along one day, and all of a sudden, you know, sin drops out of the sky, and, you know, we have coffee with him or something. Like, like what, however we look at it, right? But Paul and the Bible, and, and God seems to say that, Sin is living you. you. know, there's some, um, some, there's some horror movies that kind of g- can come to mind with that. There's a movie coming out called Venom, and, you know, there's the whole premise behind this idea of Venom is this, this comic book character has this symbiote living inside of him. But the problem with the symbiote, it actually it brings out his darker urges as well, too. And for those of you not a comic book people, you actually have a life. And those of us who are comic book people... We don't have a life. But the idea simply is this, is there's something living inside of us that's dark and it's, it, it, it's, it, it can draw us into some behaviors that can make us do things that we don't want to do. Now, watch this. This is something that Paul says time and time again. And, um, and he gives us the first list of what this looks like. Now, <clears throat> the reason I think this is so interesting is, is that these sins are the sins of of Consumption right? External, right? Now look at them, right? So he gives us a list, and this is the first list. There's two lists in here. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. These are the behaviors of consumption. These are the things that we do. These are the external uh, things that we will participate in, engage in, indulge in. These are the things that whatever it is, your earthly behavior, this this is a good list. Now remember, this is not an exhaustive list, This is just an idea of saying, okay, these are the things that you do outside of you that can draw you away, that can pull you away from what God wants. Now, the other thing is that uh, what Paul also says to us is that these behaviors, these sins lurk within us. In Galatians 5.17... Paul uses this great image. He says this, The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Now, it comes to this idea of... um, you know, you've seen those, those old cartoons of like, you know, the devil on the one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder. Maybe I should punch him. No, don't punch him, right? Like this idea, I don't know why the devil has a deep voice and the angel has a high voice, but you get the idea, right? So on your shoulder is this idea of like, oh, there's two things that are telling me to, to behave a certain way. Now, it's an image, it's a character, it's comical, but it's actually has some truth to it. And the truth is simply this, the Holy Spirit, which lives in us, given to us when we, when we are Decide to follow Jesus, and however you want to understand that, there's still something else. That's that's this fleshly part of us, there's this earthly nature of us that says, you know what? I, I, I like behaving this way, I like indulging in this, I like this stuff. Even though this stuff is actually what draws me away from God. And so Paul says this constantly, this this, this idea, and Again, I don't know Paul, and we, we can make some conjectures about who he was as a person and his character, but what I think is, is that Paul lived this, because it comes up in his writing in uh, and, and, and kind of a repetitive theme. So I think Paul kind of feels that, you know, he's torn at times for decisions. He's torn at times with whatever, and again, we see some glimpses of this, a thorn in my flesh, asked God to remove it three times, he didn't, it's like, okay. Paul can actually be human sometimes, although he seems almost superhuman in, in many uh, times of Scripture. This part of it, Paul struggles with this part of him that's like, why do I not do what I want to do? Why do I do what I don't want to do? Right, and so Paul says it's because there's two things, there's two forces within us that kind of are leading us in different directions. Now look at verse seven. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Now what I think is so interesting is, <clears throat> is that we... Is that God seems very concerned about how we behave? And so what Paul uses the language here of past tense, right? So, um, oh wait, sorry, did I go too far here? Uh apologies, I got a little excited there. I get a little button happy. Um, okay, so we're I got that one there, all right. And of course, people listening to some podcasts, like, what is he talking about? Um, did I miss verse six? Okay, I must have missed verse six. I must be on uh oh yeah, okay. Okay. All right. Oh, good. All right. All right. Okay. All right. We're good. So Paul says, because of these behaviors, because of the way we act, I'm human. All right? I, I, I know. All right? So Paul says, because of these behaviors, he uses this word wrath. Now, whenever we talk about this idea of wrath, something can come to mind. Whenever I talk to people, especially today in regards to Christianity, especially to the Bible, what they will say to me is, I don't like the Old Testament. Right? Somebody even used the term one time, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. He's too angry. He's too angry. He's too bloody. Right? I, I, I don't like this part of the Bible that talks about death and, and famine and, and all this and violence. Ah, I'm not like that. I like this Jesus guy. Right? I, 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 like, the, I, I like this Jesus guy because he's cute and he's cuddly, which, by the way, when you start reading Scripture, Jesus is anything but that. But that's the idea. People go, oh, I, I like this part. And so when Paul says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming, some of us can go, well, of course, angry God. Of course, wrath is coming, because God's always angry. That's how I see him, and that's how I have him in my mind, right? I've used this quote before, and um, I apologize for using it again. Uh, hashtag sorry, not sorry. But um, it's from John Stott. John Stott wrote this about this idea of the wrath of God. It's from his book, The Cross of Christ. And I think John Stott really, captures this concept of the wrath of God in a way that I think helps us to clarify, right? Because oftentimes we think of God as angry just because, you know, we're nice people. We're good people. Why is God always angry? It's his fault, not mine. But what John Stott does is he connects God's wrath with what takes place. So look what it says here. The wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. When we displace God's anger towards sin, what are we asking God to do? What are we asking him to overlook? Are we forgetting that sin is the cause of every form of brokenness on this planet and that in every sin there is a victim that cries out for justice? See, one of the things we forget is that when we look at this world, you almost want to build a rocket ship to Mars. You want to get on the Elon, Elon Musk train. I'm like, I want to get off this planet because nothing makes sense anymore. Because it's just as evil as it gets. Like People do an act of violence towards one another. People are, are taking advantage of one another. Why can't we just get along? Like, like This world is a mess. But in the midst of that mess is this idea of sin. And in sin, people act and behave in ways towards other people that tear them down. Like, you just got to look at your social media feed or our news, and it's like um, there are, are stories after story of people hurting, harming, uh, in, in, in the most grotesque ways, other people. And you sit, yourself, you sit to yourself going, why? But the part we forget about is in those actions, in those choices, in our free will, we hurt people. We harm people. And God's not okay with that. God is not okay with a person being enslaved or raped or murdered or uh, property taken away or being taken advantage of by a <clears throat> rich and powerful. God is not okay with that. And if you think God is okay with that, you do not know God. And so when Paul says the wrath of God is coming because of these behaviors, what he's trying to make the connection is that, You have a choice every day. And unfortunately, we choose to do horrible things to people and we think that God's okay with that because we're good people and we are not. And so these behaviors that Paul says is that, listen, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. That, in other words, one day, sooner than we perhaps think sometimes, we will give account for the choices that we make. And nobody gets away with anything. No president, no prime minister, no politician, no CEO, no founder. The rich and the powerful will give account to God for their behaviors. That's God's wrath. It's it's righteous, it's just because this world is unjust and unrighteous. So Paul helps the church in Colossae to understand that these connections need to be made. Now look at verse 7. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. You remember I said that beforehand? Right? So what he's saying here is, this is past tense. In other words, when you encounter Jesus, whether it's a week ago, a year ago, decades ago, something has meant to happen that whenever that point was, something should be changing in us. Now, perhaps you hear this morning, like, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing. I'm still figuring this whole faith thing. Absolutely. And to let me say to you as an individual, perhaps you look at, at Christians and you say, well, they don't look any different than anybody else. They behave just like everybody else. And to that I say, I'm so sorry. That's not what was intended. And so what Paul says is that this is meant to be in our past. This is meant to be past tense. And then Paul gives us the second list in verse 8. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. These are the internal desires that make external experiences. So the first list that Paul gave us was external consumption, right? Pleasurable things that we indulge in. The second list is about internal. Now, the reason this is important is because Paul is trying to do something that we forget. He's trying to align external and internal. Now, watch this. We've talked about this a lot at UCC, but I'm going to make the assumption that some of you perhaps may not have heard that. At UCC, we talk about this idea of belief, right? And we always say at UCC, belief must precede behavior. But belief and behavior must be connected together. Here's the reason why. If you only look at behavior without belief, that's religion. And, and, and what Jesus says to that is, he, one of the things he always used to say to the Pharisees is, you whitewashed tombs may not seem like the worst insult you've ever heard, but here's what Jesus is saying. You're beautiful on the outside, but you are dead on the inside, right? Whitewashed tombs. But the other part is, is what if you believe, but don't act any different than anybody else? That might just be called Canadian Christianity, right? So what Jesus says and what the Bible says, and what Paul's trying to say here is is belief and behavior must be connected because they both balance out what's supposed to happen, right? Both are balancing out what is meant to happen. So you can believe all you want, but if you don't behave any different, I would say to you that perhaps you don't believe, you don't actually believe what you believe. And you can behave however you want, but if you don't believe what, what, what God has done inside of you, then it's just religious behavior. And so belief and behavior must align for that. Now watch verse nine. Don't lie to each other for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Our nature, what we were, our deeds, how we've behaved. Now, on September 2nd, we, we, we had a teaching here, and we kind of, to launch off, it was, a little, it was a long weekend, and some of you were here, some of you weren't. It's online if you didn't say it. But on September 2nd, I made a statement, and I'll just say it to you right now. The church in Canada, the church in Waterloo, the church in North America, Western Christianity, it's broken. Nobody wants to admit it, but this thing is not working. And here's the reason why we have buildings full of uh, of Christians who don't look like Jesus, and it's almost as if we have the secret pact not to call out each other on it. It's like we we've almost kind of said, you know what? It's fine. It's fine. We're okay with it, right? We. God, don't, don't go crazy. The Bible's metaphor. It's mythological. It's meant to be something to look at, but it's like a fortune cookie. Crack it open when you want to, but just don't take it too seriously, right? Paul says this, stop lying to each other. Just stop lying to each other. Just be honest. And honesty is not about, oh, I don't believe in God, I believe in God. But honesty is like, I'm broken, you're broken. And in a gracious, loving environment, we can be honest about that brokenness and not have to judge each other, and not condemn one another. This is one of the things I loved about the support groups, the twelve-step programs that I that I've helped facilitate and and help lead. Is that these people were they they didn't have an air of superiority over the others. The reason you were there is because you were dealing with this. I've sat in an NA meeting. I've sat in an AA meeting. I've sat in other ones and and helped facilitate it. And just to hear the people saying, you know what? Hi, I'm so-and-so, and and I am an alcoholic. I struggle with narcotics. Wouldn't it be amazing at the beginning of every church service, we stand up saying, hi, I'm Roger Stone. I'm the lead pastor of Uptown Community Church, and I'm a sinner. And that's what we all would do at the very very beginning. Just a front-end low that we're not perfect. right? Just to say, you know what? We don't have it all together. We struggle. But man, we love Jesus and we're trying to work towards that. What would that be like instead of what we have right now? That we have these buildings full of Christians who don't look very much like Jesus at all. And whether it's in the political realm or social media or the world, whatever we look at, we are not doing a good job of convincing people that this unseen being called God exists. Because our behavior is not aligning what we see in the Bible. And we just have to be honest about that. And, that's, and please hear me very clearly. That's hard to say as a pastor. It's hard to say as a Christian. But at some point in time, we have to stop the insanity and just say it. This is not working. This thing is broken. Because we're not convincing anybody that we think is, that God is real or true by our behavior. And so we just have to be honest about that. And Paul says that itself. Don't lie to each other. For you have stripped off your old sinful nature and your wicked deeds. Nature, what we are. Deeds, what we do. Belief and behavior. Right? These things uh, these are things we, we take off and stripped off. Now, watch this. Because in verse 10, Paul gives us hope. Because up to this point in time, this has been pretty bleak. <laughs> this has been... I understand, okay? I understand. This has been pretty bleak. But now in verse 10, Paul gives us hope. Because Look what he says here. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Two concepts here. Put on your new nature. What does it mean putting on your new nature? Well, every, this morning, every one of you got dressed before you left. And I want to say thank you so much for doing that. <laughs> but the point is simply this. Paul is saying, Put on your new nature, which is, which is Jesus. Jesus is your life. Just, just, just do it. Just, just be that, that which you are. But the second part is learn. Learn. What is learning? That means it's a process. Transformation seems to be both choice and process. Whenever you'd encounter Jesus, however long ago that was, there is a process from that moment forward that you are learning. I remember at one church I was at, um, this, this, this individual just became a Christ follower and, um, and, and they're really excited about Jesus and, and they were hanging out with us, um, and they just, they didn't, they were just learning what it meant to be a Christ follower. And I remember one time, uh, they were at this event, a social event, and, um, and I know this is being recorded, but whatever. Uh, they said the F word as, long, as loud as you could imagine in, in this gathering. It was like, turn around and look at me. And, and he's like, what? And it's like, oh, filthy language. Oh, right, okay, got it, right? We're not, oh, we're not, oh, right? And it was kind of this process of learning, oh, I don't participate. Oh, I don't, oh, okay. But there was a process. But the funny thing was is we all knew this individual. It was like, ah. He'll get it. He'll learn, right? That, that's, that's the process. And the reason why I find so much solace in the fact that Paul uses the word learn is that we're not meant to, like when you become a Christ follower, you don't download all the stuff you need to know. You learn and you grow and you're like, ah, I get it. This is the process of sanctification. This is the process of becoming like Jesus. It's not instantaneous. It is lifelong. So whether you are uh, um, a Christian for like decades or weeks or minutes you're in process. You're, you're in process. And so what Paul gives us in verse 10 is that it's a choice. You must first choose, say, you know what? I, I, I love Jesus. I do. But I also get things so wrong. And so if you could be gracious with me, I'll be gracious with you. We love Jesus. That's our nature. But now let's learn together. Let's learn what it means to, to, to be more like Jesus so that our belief and our behavior align closer to the person we think is true. Now, verse 11. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Let me change the the wording in that a little bit. It doesn't matter if you're a university student, married, single, whatever ethnicity you are, however you would self-identify, whatever classification you want, but whatever label you want to put on. These things don't matter. What matters is that Christ lives in us. So that when we come to UCC, you don't come with a label of student or married or close to death or whatever you are, or whatever, whichever way you look at yourself, right? You just come to UCC as a child of God and Christ living in you. University students, you are here this morning and you are most welcome in our church. And we don't know your past, and we don't know how well you're doing in your program, although we have emailed your heads, and they haven't told us your marks, so confidentiality is still in place. That's good there. But no, we, we don't know you. But you are welcome to this church to kind of maybe grow in your faith and continue on with your journey from wherever you're from. Simply this, this is your new life. Whatever mess, whatever chaos your life was before, when you encountered Jesus, you are now new. And Paul even goes further in Galatians. He says this, there's, not, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all alone in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Could you imagine this for a second? Could you imagine going into a, a, a group of people that you don't know that well? But as soon as you walk in, everyone looks at you going, hey, Welcome. Yeah, yeah, welcome. We, we don't need to know your past. And if you want to share at some point in time your testimony of God's on you, we'd love to hear it. But this is your new life. And that simply means that you don't have to walk in with any baggage. No one doesn't look at you and going, wow, you, know, you, really, you really messed your life up. We should probably talk about that before you continue coming here. Right? No, no, this is your new life. And what I love about these, both these passages here is whatever label, whatever classification you want to put on yourself, Paul says, get rid of it. It's Jesus. When I say Jesus is your life, I don't just simply mean that in a pretty kind of a hallmark card kind of a way. I mean, that's the foundation of how we identify you now. It's Jesus. And if it's Jesus, then everything else becomes simple after that. Now, watch this. Remember I said to Jonathan Haidt, right? Uh, Mind, heart, environment. Paul sets that up, and spoiler alert, I'm going to use a verse from one we haven't studied yet in the first 17 verses. What does Paul say about the head? What does he say at the very beginning in verses 1 to 4? Think about the things of heaven. Think about the things of heaven. right? Your brain does need information, and the information is who Jesus is and, and what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. You have to feel your faith, not just know it. But now, watch this. What's the path? And when Christ and when Christ, who is your life? What's your path? It's Jesus. It's just Jesus. And that transformation, that 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 glorification, whatever, however, whatever terminology you want to apply to it, it's just simply Jesus. That's it. And so. Change happens when these three things come together. You know that, that God loves you and that he's transforming you. You feel that love, right? We sang about it this morning, right? We sang about it. And, and I'm, I'm, um, like I came from another worship service at Wellesley Community Church and came here and it's like these two churches singing together these songs. And sometimes I just want to say to people, stop singing and just think about what you're saying. Just listen to the words for a second. We're saying some pretty incredible things, my chains are gone. What chains are those? The chains of sin, the chains of my behaviors, the chains of things that have me behind. They're gone now, and I'm set free. Fear no longer makes me do what I need to do. What, and fear makes us do the stupidest things. Like these are the things we've been singing about. This is stuff that we get to feel here. But now what's the path? And when Christ, who is your life, and we're gonna take a look at this, we're gonna take a look at this a little bit more next week. Sorry. Now let's go back to this question I asked at the very beginning. Pretend God was invisible. Then the only way you know God to be true is by the behavior of those who claim to know God. Through Jesus. That's the point of what Paul is trying to make to the church in Colossae, otherwise known as Colossians. However you understand Jesus, however you understand God and faith and all that, and we can talk about depth, we can talk about theology, we can talk about all these things, But at the end of the day, what he really means is this. You act differently because you believe differently. What is wrong with the church in Waterloo, in Canada, in North America, Western Christianity, when we have disconnected those two things? When Christians act and behave in ways that... Like, I don't know about you, but I find myself apologizing more than I ever have in my entire life about Christians. Like, whether it's politics whether it's social media, whether it's just people, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry. I really, I just want to get a business card print out. Like, I'm just, I'm sorry. And just like lots of scripture in the back. I'm so sorry. No, no, Christians shouldn't have a hand. No, no, they should say that. No, no, they shouldn't act like that. No, no, that individual who, that, that's not, no, no, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I just like keep apologizing because we've done a really bad job of elevating Jesus and the behaviors of what Christ looks like. And lining it up with what we what we're doing, and if I can really be honest, I'm just as bad as everybody else, because I am not perfect, not even close to being perfect. And so sometimes I have no, I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not apologizing for other people. I'm just flat out <laughs> apologizing for myself. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make that joke. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I'm. I'm just. I'm sorry. Because I, am, I myself need to. Figure this out. Now watch this. Remember I said to you that some people don't like the Old Testament because it seems so bloody and so violent, and other people go, you know what, I, I, I like Jesus, right? And, and, and our culture today, we talk about this idea of feeling God loves you and letting God know he loves us, and that's true. But when Jesus talks about people who follow him, look what he says. There seems to be this idea with Jesus That what he is offering, what he is giving humanity, this idea of the gospel is so valuable, so amazing, so transformative that those who encounter it look at everything else in their life and use it in Ephesians chapter 4, garbage, right? My life before I met Jesus was garbage. That this unsurpassable riches, this thing, right? For a guy like Jesus who's all supposed to be cute and cuddly, he really seems kind of concerned about those who call themselves his followers, how they represent themselves in their behaviors in the world. Like, I think it's so interesting to me when time and time again, and again, these are just some examples. Like, you know, I could have filled many slides with uh, scripture about this, but Jesus seemed to say this, and it kind of boils down to this. Those who follow me will kind of start looking like me. And at the beginning, it will be rough around the edges and they'll be working through some things, for sure. But just that trajectory out from there, little by little, every day, every month, every year, something more transformative. Remember I said to you, how, does, how do we prove to the world that an invisible God exists? Well, Colossians chapter one actually tells us the answer to that. Christ is the visible image of, Of the invisible God. Christ is the image, the visible image of the invisible God. We don't see Jesus now, but for a brief period of time, Jesus was on this planet. And people saw this Jesus we talk about. Now, those of us whose followers displaced thousands of years from this event, the only way you get to prove to the people in your class, the people in your dorms, the people in your work, the people in your relationship with, that Jesus is true, is how you behave. And that is both horrifying and glorifying. Because it just makes me remind myself that in the places that I go and the things that I do and the language that I use and, and the ways that I think myself, I'm representing Jesus. And I'm so glad that He is gracious. I'm so glad that He is merciful and compassionate. He is. You don't come to UCC and we don't have a list of things we want you to do. But I do want you to just absolutely stop and think to yourself, am I being transformed? And if I'm not, how do I get back on that path? How do I allow the Holy Spirit in my life to change and transform me? How do I look more like Jesus? Let's pray. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, we do this every week, so... No one freak out. I just want you to have an opportunity just to reflect, just to think. The question I want you to think about is, are you being transformed? Are you being changed into Jesus? And it's it seems like kind of a, a no-duh question. But I honestly believe that we go through life and we don't actually stop to think to ourselves the decisions that we make, the behaviors that we do, the things that we uh, indulge in, is this drawing us closer to God or actually taking us away from God? I don't know if we actually think, ask that question anymore. We just assume. I want you to think about that because that's all God wants from us. That's all God has for us. Are you being transformed? Are you moving towards what God wants for you? And if not, how do we move towards that? Dear Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you are merciful and loving. And that's the thing we need to first and foremost understand. That is our belief, that you loved us, that you died upon the cross for us. And God, I pray in Jesus' name that each person here this morning would understand that. But now, Lord, we move to the second part, and that's our behavior. That's who we are. God, I pray that we would act like you are real. That we would behave like you are real. So that the world may know that the followers of Jesus, those who call themselves disciples of Christ, we want to act and behave differently. We want to love sacrificially. We want to serve without thought to ourselves. We just want to let Jesus shine. And Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit that moves us and changes us and transforms us on this journey. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would help us move that way. Thank you for this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen.